Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, in our last episode before Christmas, I am going to be trying to answer some of your questions about the series that we've just finished on the history of the great essays. I'll be handing over to Helen. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is where you can read great essays and great essayists. And you can subscribe for a special rate if you just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Hello, I'm Helen from the podcast team. And today I'm going to be putting your questions to David about the History of Ideas series we've just finished. So first up, we got quite a few questions and comments from listeners about essays you didn't cover that might have been in there. One specifically related to the Up Simba podcast on David Foster Wallace and asked, why no mention of Norman Mailer's Superman Comes to the Supermarket, described by this listener as the original and still the greatest political essay as first person narrative ever. The others that followed are trying to replicate its magic. That's a really good question. And I was aware of that essay, but I'd never read it. And I saw that it had been recommended by this listener as one of the great essays. So I thought I should read it. And I used to read quite a lot of Norman Mailer when I was younger, as people like me maybe did. Uh, But I haven't read Norman Mailer for a million years. It is a really interesting essay. And for people who don't know it, it was published in 1960, towards the end of 1960. But it's about the Democratic Party convention of that year for the presidential race that eventually saw John F. Kennedy take on and defeat Richard Nixon. And Mailer went to Los Angeles, where the convention was happening, to report on what looked like the likely nomination of JFK, but also to get an interview with him. He secures an interview with him. And to write about who this guy is, this incredibly glamorous, new-seeming kind of politician, and what it means for American politics. And he has an argument in that essay, which is, what he thought at this time, the likely victory of JFK was a watershed moment in American history because this was a completely different kind of candidate. So telegenic, sort of stunningly good looking in certain lights, looked like a movie star. And actually, the version of the essay that I read was online with a YouTube clip of Kennedy's speech accepting the nomination. And my God, he is unbelievably glamorous. I mean, he really does look like a movie star. So Mailer thinks something huge is going on here, and he has this claim that in American life, there are always two things happening. There is what's happening on the surface, which is often quite conventional and predictable and quite staid, and that was symbolized by the presidency that had just gone, the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower, the general, and the 1950s America, which in Mailer's version was an example of this staid, repressed version of American life. And then underneath the surface, seething animal, sexual spirits and wildness and something quite sort of terrifying. And these two things are always there in American life, and sometimes they come apart. So his argument is that in the Eisenhower presidency, they were very much separate. Public life was all quite downbeat and boring, but some weird stuff was happening in people's lives behind that, just not on public view. But that Kennedy was someone who brought the two sides together, that his appeal was so obviously sexual and animal, because no one really knew what he stood for. It didn't seem to be about his policies or his platform. And so American politics was going to move into an era 
the era of television, where the two sides of American life come together in these glamorous figures. So that's the essay. It's it's extremely interesting. But and I hesitate to say this when I read it, I also thought it's not very good in the sense that unlike the other essays I've talked about in this series, it's really dated. It's much more dated, for instance, than essays that were written before it, George Orwell, writing about a very specific period in time and a, a specific kind of politics, 1940s, English-British politics. But Orwell is still completely alive. And Norman Mailer's essay is kind of dead. And I was trying to work out why. And I'm not sure I know, but I think there are a few things going on here. One of which is this listener in, in asking this question says, is the reason that people don't read Norman Mailer anymore, that he was a truly terrible human being, and he's kind of been cancelled. So that is part of the reason that people don't read him anymore. He was a terrible human being. When I googled him, the first thing that comes up is a Guardian article written just after he died, which more or less says farewell to this ghastly old homophobic misogynist monster, which is what he was. And this essay is really bombastic. His unpleasantness comes through, but that's not a reason to cancel it. Lots of writers are awful people, and their awfulness sometimes comes through, but they can still write great essays. It's more that it's overwritten. I'm just going to give an example of it. So I just picked one sentence. There are lots of sentences like this. But this is an example of how Norman Mailer was writing about politics in America in 1960. I quote, If one still smells the faint living echo of carnival wine, the pepper of a bullfight, the rag, drag, and panoply of a jousting tawny, it is all swallowed and regurgitated by the senses into the fouler cud of a death gas one must rid oneself of, a cigar-smoking, stale-aired, slack-jawed, butt-littered, foul, bleak, hard-working, bureaucratic death gas of language and faces. Yes, those faces, says the man from Mars. Lawyers, judges, ward healers, mafiosos, southern goons and grandees, grand old ladies, trade unionists and finks, of pompous words and long pauses, which lay like a leaden pain over fever, the fever that one is in, over, or is it that one is just behind, history? That's one sentence. It's exhausting to read it. So that's part of the problem. I think, unlike all the other essays that I've discussed in this series, some of which are pretty flowery, they aren't overwritten, and this one is. But the other problem with it, I think the reason why it's dated is that the scale of it is wrong. He's claiming too much. So I said in uh, the episode that we did last week about what makes for a great essay, that it plays around with scale, the, the small and the large, the large and the small, but you've got to get it right. And in this, he overclaims. So he wants to make the case that Kennedy represents this sea change in American life and everything will change with the election of JFK and that this is all somehow predetermined. So he makes the assumption that once Kennedy is nominated, he, he's bound to win. He's bound to defeat Nixon because he's got the glamour and Nixon hasn't. So yes, Kennedy did win, but he won by the tiniest of margins. It was a coin toss. It could have easily gone the other way. And many people think he stole that election using his dad's influence. It was random that the outcome of that election was more or less random, but Mailer is making it into this universal moral lesson about American life. And it just feels like the argument that he's making, he had decided on before he arrived at the convention. And he hammers it into you. He really sort of batters you with his impressions, which feel like they are pre-cooked. 
And so it doesn't have the quality that I think these great essays have, which is they take you on a journey where the person writing them discovers things along the way. And with this, it's almost like Mailer doesn't discover anything because he knows what he thinks. The thing that most surprises him in this essay is when he meets Kennedy, Kennedy has been briefed by his team to butter Mailer up by telling him that he admires his book and not naming the book that everyone else names, the book he was famous for, The Naked and the Dead, but one of the other books. So the only kind of surprise in this is John F. Kennedy, the most glamorous man in America, is sucking up to Norman Mailer, and Norman Mailer claims to be surprised by this. It's not that interesting. Not enough of it is a journey. So the last thing I'd say about this is that it did also remind me of something else about essays and essay writing, which I've thought about during this series. Mailer also wrote quite a lot of sports journalism, and he wrote very, very celebrated, perhaps his most famous essays about heavyweight boxing fights. He was particularly obsessed with boxing because he was obsessed with sort of macho male life. He wrote a lot about boxing, and some people think these are his great essays. And I did think in this series, because I read a lot of sports writing, and I, I really enjoy it, and I think there is lots of great sports writing, whether you know a great sports essay should be in here. And one example of that might be, I think many people feel David Foster Wallace's greatest essay is his essay on Roger Federer, the tennis player. It's probably the one he's best known for in his essay writing persona. And I did think about including that one, but I find myself thinking, it's just sport. I, I love sport, but it's just sport. A lot of people hate it, and it's just of no interest to many people. But having to make the case that something deeply significant is going on in a Wimbledon tennis final or even in a heavyweight boxing contest. You can see the symbolism of it, but it feels overwrought and overblown. And this Norman Mailer essay has that feel too. It's like he's talking about Nixon and Kennedy as though it were a heavyweight boxing match in which whoever knocks the other one down has proved some point about the nature of the world and masculinity and sex. And it's just not true. It's too much like sports writing. And I say this as a fan of sports writing, the greatest essays play around with scale, but with sport, something is off and something is off with this essay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, so you did not agree with that listener about the Norman Mailer essay, but the same listener also mentions how obsessed you are with Trump, which a lot of people have commented on, frankly, and it's hard to miss. So here are a couple of Trump questions. First off, what would Dickens have made of Trump? Is he the counter to the assertion that every real character is more complex and nuanced than any character in a novel? 
first up, yes, I am aware, and I was aware as I was doing this series that there's quite a lot of Trump in it, given that none of the essays are about Trump. Uh, and and we've had quite a lot of questions, and I've had quite a lot of emails about this. That question picks up on the fact Trump keeps coming up in a series that's not about him. But also, I think it refers back to the conversation that I had with Zadie Smith about her great novel and the discussion that we had about Dickens there. I think it is a great question. One obvious response is that as a Dickens character, Trump fits, partly because he's just got a great name. I mean, I'm not the only person who's noticed this, that his name is Dickensian. Dickens was a genius at giving his characters names that weren't completely obviously sort of nominative determinism names, but just fit. And Donald Trump's name fits. Many people have pointed out that had his family not changed their name, he would be Donald Drumpf, which also is a Dickensian name. But Donald Drumpf in Dickens would be some kind of minor, drunken, nobody character. Donald Trump sounds like the kind of name that Dickens would come up with for a president of the United States. In Dickens's American novel, Martin Chuzzlewit, he has various American names. He invents some American names, including of a journalist who writes for a paper. I think it's called something like the New York Rowdy News. And this journalist is called Jefferson Brick, which I think is a fantastic name. And I think Donald Trump should have a lawyer called Jefferson Brick. So he's Dickensian in his name. He's also Dickensian because he does the thing that Dickens' characters do, and I think this is what this question is getting at, which is he just has a kind of riff that sums up who he is in almost everything he does. Dickens' characters tend to say the same thing over and over again. They have one or two salient characteristics that Dickens really hammers home. They have catchphrases. Mr. Micawber just says the same thing over and over again. They can be sketched as two or three things, and that's the person. And Dickens, and this is one of the reasons that many people don't like Dickens, it feels that he just keeps making people do the same thing over and over. And Trump is exactly that kind of politician. He's that kind of person. His speeches, even though they're incredibly long, just have these ticks in them, verbal ticks, also ticks of personal expression and identity, just the way he comes across, which are so familiar. It's so him. He is so him. And that's Dickensian. But then, and this is what I was talking to Sadie Smith about and what this question is getting at, the frustration that some people have with Dickens is where's the person behind the, the surface, the, the verbal tics, the salient characteristics? I think it's unfair to say of Dickens that he just gives you the masks of these characters because actually why Dickens is often so moving is that someone that you've come to know as a just a set of catchphrases, is revealed, often very sentimentally, to be a feeling, thinking, loving human being. And that revelation, as you get to know them better through the novel, and as things happen to these people, and the, the verbal tics become just the surface of much, much deeper, roiling emotions. That's often what's most moving about his novels. And at the same time, Dickens uses the fact that he creates these characters that have a public persona, a way of being in the world, to highlight the thing that he most hated, as many people do, and one of the central themes of this series of essays, which is hypocrisy. Dickens always wanted, where possible, to expose the hypocrites, the Victorian hypocrites, the American hypocrites, the hypocrisy of American life, its verbal tics, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, its declarations of treating people equally, and the fact that it was, when he went there, a slave-owning society. 
that hypocrisy was what he wanted to expose. And he often does it with characters who are revealed behind this public mask to be nothing like that, to be using that that verbal presence in the world to conceal their true character. So the problem with Dickens and Trump is that I was trying to think about, therefore, say he constructed this president called Donald Trump and he'd written a novel about him. How would he then do the thing of taking you behind the public persona to show you either the the feeling, caring human being or the hypocrite? And it's really hard to imagine either because I guess Dickens could have written a novel where you go behind the scenes in the White House when Trump is president and you see a very moving scene between him and his kids where it turns out he's not just this blowhard that he is in public, that he has feelings or there is some sentiment there. And maybe there is. I mean, presumably he does have a sentimental relationship with his children. But it's so hard to imagine it would take a novelist of Dickens's genius to be able to do it. I have no idea. I don't, I don't know how you would do that. Or he could go behind the scenes and reveal that actually this man is a hypocrite that there is this public persona, but behind that, he is much more scheming, Machiavellian, devious. He actually has a, an agenda which isn't revealed in his, in his public appearance. And that's also not plausible, I think, because as I said, in talking about Trump, he, is, he seems to be consistent, sincere, that the verbal tics, the person that he is in public, is him. Every account I've read of him makes it pretty clear that the behind-the-scenes Donald Trump is like the public Donald Trump. You have to listen to hours and hours of him saying the same thing over and over again, harping on the same themes, using the same phrases. He just is that guy. So how would it work in a Dickens novel? So maybe Trump is unusual in that he feels Dickensian, but unlike Dickens's characters who do have hidden depths, he doesn't. But it would take a, a novelist of of Dickens's genius. Maybe Zadie Smith should write a novel about Donald Trump. So sticking with Trump, you've talked a lot about Trump as emblematic of some of the themes in these essays. And one listener wants to know what would happen if you took Trump out of the picture? How much still holds in the counterfactual where there is no Trump? Is this about him or about our times? That's a very fair point. As I kept coming back to Trump, I did think I was overdoing it a bit. And I think a lot of people who write about politics, uh, wonder whether, and certainly this was a theme in 2016 and 2020 and is bound to be again in 2024, do we spend too much time on this man? But also, I know I've done this in the podcast, I think in one of the conversations with Leia Ippi, the, the assumption that these other political figures around the world who are doing politics in a similar way are just versions of him. He's the template. So I think I called in, in a podcast recently, Gert Wilders, the, the guy who's just won the elections in the Netherlands, a pound shop Donald Trump, as though you know, they made Trump, he's he's the mold, and everyone else is just trying to fit into that mold. It could easily be the other way around. There's no reason to think that Trump is the definitive version and Millet and Wilders and Orban and all the others aren't. I mean, some of them have been doing this for longer than he has, including Orban. And Clearly, there's something going on here which is bigger than Donald Trump. He is, as this question suggests, he's emblematic of something, but he's also therefore clearly riding a tide which he hasn't created and which other people are riding too. So I don't think there's any reason to assume that just because Trump does it, the other people are copying him. I don't know if he's copying them, but they may all be doing the same thing. And that does then suggest the counterfactual, which is if this is happening anyway, it might well be happening anyway in America, 
without him. So it's really hard. These counterfactuals are almost impossible to do because you just can't you just can't know what would American politics be like if Donald Trump wasn't around. For whatever reason, there may, I'm sure there are many scenarios in which this could have happened, in which his ambitions to become president were thwarted. Maybe they took down his business and sent him to jail before that even started. Would there be a Trump-like person dominating American politics now? So I, I can't think of anyone who is quite like him, partly for the reasons I gave in the last answer. He is unique. I think he is a unique public figure because of his character. So not so much his politics or what he represents, but the kind of human being he is. He's very rare, I think. There probably would be certainly this kind of politics around in the United States. There are questions to be asked about what might have happened in 2016 if he had lost. That was another coin toss election. He won because of somewhere between 50 and 100,000 votes in three states. They could have gone the other way if Hillary Clinton had visited Michigan. There are all those hypotheticals. Say he had lost, what would American politics be like now? I don't think it would be massively different in the sense that a Clinton presidency would have animated many of the forces that are still raw, red hot in American politics. Now, the partisanship wouldn't have lessened, for sure. And the Republican Party was on a path which Trump rode. He surfed it. He didn't create it. It's also true that in 2016, Trump polled almost exactly as many votes as would have been predicted if you took his name out of it and simply asked people, will you vote for the generic Republican candidate? He just won as a Republican. So this is not just about him. Probably if he is re-elected, that will make the story more distinctive. There isn't a parallel somewhere else in the world for that, particularly because he would be re-elected as an election denier. I think the re-election of Trump as an election denier and him becoming president again means it's quite hard then to swap him out of the story and get anywhere near where American politics will end up. The last thing I say about this is, I know I brought Trump up in my discussion of Susan Sontag's essay against interpretation, which was a bit of a stretch because Susan Sontag's essay has got nothing to do with Donald Trump. But I suggested that you can think of him as an avant-garde politician in that he does play around with the form. I don't think there's a lot of content there. He's all about the form. And he has spotted that the form, the, the formalities of democratic politics are pretty stale in many respects. They're dead. They feel dead to people like a dead art form. And he's trying to break it open in the way that people who reinvent actual art forms can break them open by doing radically different things, doing it in radically different ways, not having brand new ideas. The ideas might not be that different but the form that it takes is completely different. And Trump is doing that. It's also true with art, as with science and other things, that when a conventional way of doing something becomes stale, sterile, dead, there are often lots of people who are breaking it open at roughly the same time. Often radical new scientific methods are devised by different people in different places that have nothing in common with each other. Often when a new art movement gets going, it's associated maybe with one person or a couple of people, but it turns out there are quite a few people who are doing that thing in different places. And the reason that it breaks through is that the people who symbolize it or represent it are not the only ones doing it. And the avant-garde isn't just a one-person show that then changes the dynamic. It's representative of something wider than that that one person or that one artist and that's almost certainly true of Trump so i suspect that he's not 
he's not like Picasso or something. Uh, he's not this towering figure that people will look back on and say, he changed the whole thing. Those people are very rare. And even Picasso is just one of a group of people. Trump is more like someone who maybe comes to symbolize a movement in art, not because that person is the best at it or even did it first or anything like that, but just became the most visible representative of it. But there is much more of this going on in other places with other people than can be captured by running it all through Trump. If he wins again, I think that changes. If he doesn't win again, I think, looking back on history, it will be possible to swap him out of the story and the story not to radically change. I don't think this will be the age of Trump unless he wins again, and then it will be the age of Trump. Okay, so we can all look forward to more on Trump from you. But in the meantime, one of the episodes which inspired quite a few questions was the episode on Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay. And one of the questions was about the argument regarding reparations for black Americans. One simply asks, who pays and how does it happen? Litigation, legislation, wealth transfer, credits? So in many ways, that I think that is the question. I'm not sure I'm the person who can answer it. It's a bit above my pay grade and there's lots that's been written about this and really involved and interesting debates about how this kind of politics might work in practice. I think there is there a basic distinction in the first two choices between litigation and legislation. And in my discussion of that essay, I started with the example of this recent movie, The Burial, in which it's a it's a litigation story. So it's about a particular corporation being taken on by, in this case, a white funeral parlor chain owner who feels he's been stiffed by this corporation, but it turns in then to a story about the way in which a much bigger story has been at play, the the way in which this Southern Black Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, was ripped off on a systemic scale. And and the real compensation is is owed to the members of that church. It, it only gets to them very indirectly and the litigation isn't actually the correct litigation, which should be the members of that church against the corporation, but it illustrates the core point, which is it takes a long time. It's very contentious. The arguments really have to be worked out and played out before a jury, but eventually the case is made and it can be seen by anyone with eyes to see that one group of people have exploited another group of people in a way that is illegal and also requires restitution and therefore punitive damages are awarded. So there are lots of advantages to doing it that way because it does identify the corporation. So in, in Tanahisi Coates' essay, he focuses quite a lot on the real estate market in Chicago and the ways in which mortgage lenders exploited certain people, black Americans who wanted to buy homes by using loopholes and exploitative methods and bypassing the law and using the fact that this was a massively restricted market to take advantage of people who simply wanted to buy a home and offering them far worse terms than if they had been white. That was illegal. And it ought to be possible in a court of law to take those corporations on and to seek damages. And Coates writes about the fact that a group of black American homeowners had been trying that for many, many years, a civil action. 
against these mortgage lenders. But it's it's really hard. It's really hard work. You've got to find the right court, the right jury. You have to have the resources. It has to go your way. There's quite a lot of luck involved. And the system is geared against you because there are huge advantages to these powerful corporations because they can pay the best lawyers. If you can win that way, it's probably the way to do it because it does identify the wrongdoers. And it makes the case in a way that it has to be laid out step by step so that it's unarguable. That's how you win it. But the trouble is it's hard and it's really piecemeal. So there's nothing general about it. Each case is different. They might have won in Chicago, lost somewhere else. It doesn't become law. So that's the disadvantage of the litigation route. The disadvantage of the legislation route is that it happens through politics. So it isn't like laying out an argument in a court of law, making it completely clear what happened. It gets caught up in political rhetoric and it gets caught up in all of the grandstanding and it becomes a completely different kind of thing. The advantage of it is that it can be general. The legislation can be general. So it could be a an overall restitution to a class of people that could include all black Americans. There, so there is no straightforward way to do it. Each way of doing it has advantages and disadvantages, and probably the ideal version of it would be one that combined the two. So it had the the forensic quality of the litigation process with the universal political coverage of legislation. Is that possible? I don't know. It may be possible at the local level. I mentioned Evanston in Illinois, where something like this has happened. But is it possible at the federal level? Probably not. The question also asks who pays, and I think there is a clearer answer to that. So the taxpayer should pay in that this would have to be done through the government, the state. And if it's the taxpayer, then it isn't some group that is being asked to recompense some other group. So if it's litigation and an actual corporation can be identified that broke the law, great. But if it's more general than that, the politics becomes pretty toxic if one group of people are told to recompense another group of people and that first group say, it wasn't us. It happened a long time ago. Why are you coming after us? But if it's the taxpayer, the general taxpayer, it's part of the general public funds, it is not going after any particular group. If it is the taxpayer, it would include black Americans. It would include everyone who, for whatever reason, is covered by the tax code. That presumably would include people who can afford it. And if it was a fair tax code, that would definitely be the fairest way to do it. So I think it should, I don't think it should be, if it can't be a particular company, a particular wrongdoer, if it is more general than that, then it should be through the the tax system in the same way that the, the state recompenses all sorts of people through general public funds, not because the taxpayer is responsible for the wrongdoing but because the state is the one organization that has the assets to be able to do this on that scale. So I think I know who should pay, but I don't know how. Sticking with the Coates essay, another question was about the historical example that Coates uses at the end. West German reparations to Israel presented as a successful, if highly contentious, instance of how this could work. But what about the reparations demanded of Germany after the First World War? Isn't that an example of how this can go badly wrong? It is. I don't think from memory that Coates discusses that in his essay. It's a different, So that's a different kind of reparations. And it is notoriously the example of how it goes really badly wrong. That there is a historical argument that says what it produces is Hitler, basically. 
the resentment that was caused by the punitive reparations after the First World War created in Germany the conditions for the rise of fascism. And in this series of essays, something that I thought about, but I decided simply that it's too long, it's more like a book, though I don't think it's any longer than Montaigne's essay that I begin the series with, The Apology for Raymond Sebon. John Maynard Keynes's the Economic Consequences of the Peace from 1919. It's, it's, it's either a short book or it's a long essay, and it could well be in the series. It's a remarkable piece of writing, and it isn't dated. Like Norman Mailer is dated, but in the end I decided not to. But it makes the case, the celebrated case, that this punitive reparations regime will not just punish and cripple the German economy. It will be bad for all of Europe. Everyone will lose. And many people believe that over time Keynes was proved right. There are also many people who've made the counter-argument that it wasn't as bad as portrayed, that the economic consequences weren't nearly as straightforward as Keynes thought they would be. Nonetheless, I think the case is clearly different. It's collective guilt. It's it's for a war, but it's collective guilt the German people as a whole are being asked to pay. In the example that Coates talks about in his essay, there is real willingness on the part of the West German government to make the case that some reparations should be paid. And actually, the resistance, as he described it, was all in Israel, people saying, this is disgusting, you can't buy us off in that way. This version was the other way around. The Germans were not in any way keen to pay. And they were being asked to pay by states, France, where huge damage had been done, but also by Britain and the United States of America, which were not in need of these reparations. I mean, Britain maybe could claim that it was, the war had semi-bankrupted it, but nonetheless, it hadn't suffered the damage, the physical infrastructure damage that France had suffered. But the United States didn't need the money at all. The United States had done very, very well out of the war. The United States was a more prosperous nation and indeed a more powerful nation, the most powerful in the world by 1918. So the most powerful nation in the world was in the business, not of demanding for itself, but certainly backing up the reparations demand. So it feels wrong. Coates, as an analogy, certainly Coates is talking about reparations to people who really, really need it for systemic injustices done to them as a a class, a race, a group over time. The case of Germany after the First World War is is radically different. And therefore, that might be why it's, it's a bad example. That's why it goes wrong. But I think it is also an example of something that maybe is relevant for general cases of reparations, which is what really went wrong probably was not the economic consequences. What went wrong was the politics. And the politics went wrong because being asked to pay reparations, particularly when it is a collective guilt exercise, can be used, exploited by politicians to drum up massive resentment and anger, which is what Hitler did. So it is exploitable in any political system, if it is this kind of reparations argument, you all have to pay because of this bad thing that you did, allowing people to say, it's unfair, it wasn't us, we're no worse than you, which many Germans would have felt. And you you are making us suffer when you are the ones that actually are doing okay out of this. And you can imagine all of those things playing out in the kinds of reparations cases that Coates is talking about too, and actually it's already happening, so it's already happening in America, that there is a politics which uses 
the arguments for reparations in order to drive, to drum up easily exploited resentments against a feeling, an idea that a group of people are being collectively punished for something for which they are not responsible. And I think this case does show just how toxic that can be. The other thing that I wanted to say here, I'll do this pretty briefly, because obviously there is masses that could be said about this, but I am aware because quite a few people have mentioned this and and Tanahesi Coates has been quite visible recently talking about Israel and Palestine and the war in Gaza. And he has recently come out and said, not in any way, I think, repudiating the earlier essay. And I ended with that analogy with Israel just because I thought it was so interesting and provocative and in some ways surprising. But he has said recently that he wants to be very clear that he understands the real parallel between black American lives to be not with Israelis or Jews, but with Palestinians. And in particular, many critics of the Israeli regime have described it as an apartheid regime. Uh, He draws the analogy with the Jim Crow regime in the American South. The treatment of Palestinians is comparable to the treatment of black Americans in the South under Jim Crow, and it is what he calls a segregation or segregationist regime. And for those reasons, that's where he sees the core parallel lying. And then on the back of that, he has talked about the need for there to be a ceasefire in Gaza, but also for there to be a dismantling of this regime. He's on the side of the Palestinian people in this, using that analogy. He does also say that he remains open to the comparison between the plight of or the experiences of black Americans and the experiences of Jews. I've read some of the things that he's written about this recently. I'm still struck by the ways in which, like the essay, what I love about the essay is that he writes about this as a kind of journey. So the things that I've read by him recently are describing his experiences, including his recent experiences, literally traveling to the West Bank, traveling to Israel, traveling to Gaza before the war, talking to people, Israelis, Palestinians, responding to some of the things that they say, thinking hard about the completely understandable and recognizable anger of the Palestinians comparable to the kind of anger he is familiar with in the history of black Americans through the 20th century into the 21st century, recognizing the affinity, but also seeing the dilemmas, talking about the dilemma of how you think about that level of anger and rage, and yet also try to be inspired by a creed of nonviolence in the spirit of Martin Luther King. I've read a lot of things, as I'm sure many people have, about the the war in Gaza. I am still struck. I think Tanahisi Coates is one of the great writers of our time. And I am still struck by, as he writes about it, there is a kind of openness to his ideas evolving. And they, they there is an evolution from the essay, The Case for Reparations, to now in where he wants to draw the analogy. But he is still open to both analogies. And that does seem to me to be in contrast with so much of what is written about this from both sides, where you don't get any sense in reading it that you are being taken on any kind of journey because you are simply being told what to think. And as in the case for reparations, as in that essay, Tanahasi Coates is very clear that he is telling his readers what he thinks. And it's, there's nothing ambiguous about it. He's a very, very forceful writer. His argument is not blurry at all. So at the end of it, 
a case has been made, as would be now his case for a ceasefire in Gaza. Yet, despite that, it feels like, as with all the great essays, that the line of thought is evolving as it is being written. And that is so unusual in anything that is being written at the moment about the war in Gaza. Okay, so maybe related to what you just talked about there, we got a question about James Baldwin and the distinction between hatred and anger. This listener wants to know what the relationship is between anger and what Nietzsche called ressentiment, which he also described as imaginary revenge. These are really good questions and I feel I don't feel particularly qualified to answer them. I did in the previous series of the History of Ideas, uh, and we'll tweet the link to this episode, uh, I did an episode on Nietzsche and on some of these questions, including what Nietzsche called the slave revolt in morality, which is one of his examples of how this kind of anger, resentment comes out. When Nietzsche was talking about the slave revolt in morality, he wasn't talking about a slave uprising. He wasn't talking about rebellion, a violent rebellion or overturning of a oppressive system. He was talking about the origins of Christianity and what he understood as the ways in which people who are powerless will still try and find an outlet for what he called their will to power. And they will do it, if they can't do it the way that the strong do by simply trampling over the weak, they will find it in the realm of ideas. They will come up with ideas, schemes, codes, laws, moral codes, to constrain the people who are oppressing them. So the imaginary revenge here is not just if you are weak and powerless, you sort of fantasize about revenge, but you never get an outlet for it because what can you do except dream of your revenge? You, you lack the power to achieve it. Nietzsche was talking about revenge in the realm of the imagination of ideas, which Nietzsche says can be the most powerful revenge of all, because if you come up with an imaginary idea, which Nietzsche thought it was, like Christianity, and get the world to adopt it, get the world to adopt your imagined way of living, you win. So I think for Nietzsche, at least, this kind of imaginary revenge can be very creative. And it can also be incredibly powerful. I don't really know where that fits into Baldwin's story, or even what I was just talking about there with Coates and not just reparations, but also uh, Israel-Palestine that tension Coates in talking about this recently has talked about the, you know, the the traditions in which he's thinking and working the imaginary traditions Martin Luther King is one Frederick Douglass is another Frederick Douglass who ended up began as a campaigner for the nonviolent abolition of slavery and by the time of the civil war was completely clear that it has to be done through violence and so these things are always in conflict is this the slave revolt in the sense that this this has to be the uprising or is this the slave revolt in the Nietzsche sense that this has to be the imagined revenge, which then becomes the scheme through which you are able to constrain the people who oppress you because you you get everyone to adopt a code in which you are taken seriously. The trouble with the second, as with the story of Christianity, is it takes an awfully long time to really take a hold. The trouble with the first is it's violent and unpredictable and often ends up with everybody worse off. So there's no answer here. In, in Baldwin's case, as with Tanahasi Coates, both of these things are going on. In that essay, I think he's clear that he wants to hold the line between anger and hatred. But 
the line between anger. I think this is what this question is implying, the line between anger and imaginary revenge in the Nietzschean sense. I don't think he wants to, and I probably don't think it's possible to hold that line. So now there's a question about the episode on Susan Sontag, but this also relates to some of the things you talked about in your conversations with Leia Ippi on democracy. What makes a process question a process question, and what makes a substance question a substance question? I take this to relate to something I'm aware I've said quite a lot, like I've said the words Donald Trump quite a lot, which is, I think we spend too much time in politics talking about the what and not enough about the how. So I take the what here to be the substance and the how to be the process. And I think people are always talking about what they want to do, but they're not spending enough time thinking about how it would be possible to do that. And I found an echo of that in Susan Sontag's essay, where she talks about the preoccupation in particularly people who comment on or write about art with what it means, the substance of it, the meaning of it, what are the ideas behind it. And they don't spend enough time focusing on what may be of more significance, which is the way it is done not the meaning, but the means, the the way it appears in the world. And that is often where the the most important reflections lie. And I, I saw, maybe it was a stretch, but I saw a parallel with what's gone wrong with politics. All I would say in answer to this is that I don't know where the line is between them. And in the end, probably questions of substance, the, the water politics are connected with the how, and the questions of the how are connected with the what. So I don't think you can draw the line between them. But the thing that does often seem clear to me is that you can spot when someone is doing just the one and not the other. And this is, I think, what Sontag was getting at, that so much art criticism was so preoccupied with interpretation and meaning that it forgot what it was that it was writing about. And it's possible every day to read arguments about what should happen in politics. We should do this. We should do that this is what I want, that is what I want, this is what justice is, That this, that, and the other, that have so moved away from the question of how it would be possible to do it that they're not talking about anything. It's, it's just a, a way of expressing a set of wants, impulses, personal preferences that become increasingly futile. And it's one of those things I think you can, you know it when you see it. It's very hard to define it. It's very hard to draw the line. But you can hear often, I think, in discussions of politics, a sense that the legitimate overwhelming desire to be completely clear about what is most important, what the ideas are that matter, has become a dead end. Similarly, you can be completely preoccupied with process at the expense of substance. So you could you occasionally hear this with people who are sort of passionate campaigners for proportional representation or for deliberative democracy or a reformed house of lords and and it ends up being an argument which is so involved in its own righteousness about the process that you want to be able to say why do you mind so much if you're not going to tell us what this is for just as i want to say to people who say this is what politics should do why are you so certain if you can't tell me how you would do it between those two poles there is the whole complex world of politics and all of its nuances and subtleties and frustrations and going back on itself and every, everything that it involves so that no line is ever stable and everything is always two things at once. But that's just the world. But at the edges of that, often, and this may be a period of that, which echoes what Sontag was saying when she wrote her essay, 
some of it has got detached from that double world where it has to be two things at once. And and when it gets detached, it can be a vehicle for extraordinary amounts of passion and intense argument. And a lot of energy can be spent on something that isn't going anywhere. Because if it isn't both, it's kind of nothing. Finally, quite a few people have been asking, now that we've finished the series on essays, if we'll be doing more series of the history of ideas. Okay, that's that question I'm qualified to answer, <laughs> unlike the other ones. Yes, yeah, so we are now about to put out the series that we've just done and done over the course of this year, starting in, in May, the 12 episodes on the great essays. We're going to put them out as a single series, one a day, every day, starting on Christmas Day for the 12 days of Christmas. I'm aware that regular listeners to this podcast may well have heard all of these before, or at least many of them, but maybe not all of them. So if there are some that you missed, but this series was also conceived to be heard as a series. And and I do try and tell a version of a story that runs through it. And some of these episodes do connect to each other. And I'm aware that as we put them out, it was a little bit distant. So I hope that it works as a series and it might be something that bears re-listening as a single series. The other thing I would say, and we don't often do this on this podcast, but if you know people maybe who want to break from the festivities, because this is not a very, we're calling it the 12 days of Christmas. It's not a very festive series, to be honest. But during Christmas, people sometimes want to break. But also, if you know people uh, who like podcasts, but maybe don't know this podcast, but you think might be interested in this, do please let them know about this, because it will be possible to get all 12 episodes, one a day, starting on the 25th of December. And we would love more people to find this podcast and, and to find this series. But we are also going to be doing new series in the new year. So there will be a couple of new series that I'll be doing in this History of Ideas strand. One on the great political novels or fictions probably will include some short stories too. I'm not sure exactly what's going to be in it. I think it'll start with Gulliver's Travels. I'm not sure where it'll end. And another series on the great political dramas that one will start with Coriolanus, and I think that one will end with Hamilton. We're going to be doing other series too. We want to do more series on this podcast and ones that we can put out together. One with Leia Ippi on the history of freedom, the history of thinking about freedom from the ancient world to now. One with John Lanchester, the novelist and essayist, which we are going to call the history of bad ideas. And you're going to have to wait and hear what those bad ideas are. But we don't want to just do the good ideas. We want to do the bad ideas too. They're often just as important. And there will be other series as well. We've got a lot planned for this podcast in the new year. Do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas to find out more about our 12 Days of Christmas series and what's coming up in the new year. If you know people who aren't aware of it and you think would like what we do, do please let them know about it. And also do please come back and join us both for the 12 days of Christmas and for everything that we're doing in the new year. And until then, to everyone who has listened to and supported this podcast, to all the people who have written in with these fantastic questions, thank you and happy Christmas. And thank you to Helen and thank you to Ben Walker, who has produced this podcast. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.